Welcome to Brave. Be inspired by the best leaders of Southeast Asia tech. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. I'm Jeremy Ao, a VC, founder, and father. Mondays for no BS commentary on the latest startup news with Shri and Co, managing partner of Hustle Fund. Thursdays for in-depth interviews of changemakers across the region, sharing about the highs and lows of their lives. Join us and over 10,000 subscribers at www.bravesea.com for transcripts, analysis, and community. Another week, another insight drop, hopefully, from Shri Yen and I. Today, we'll be discussing the Asia Partners Report by Nick Nash, which is I personally feel is one of the underrated reports on Southeast Asia tech. So I think we would love to dig into this, see what we like, see what we disagree with, send out this love letter to Asia Partners and the Nick Nash crew for a 332-page report, which is one of the longest. You can also watch the one-hour documentary, I think. They've tried to digest it. Yeah, so what jumped out at you, Shien? What did you like about the whole report? I mean, I think overall, it's a really positive report. I like how they tie it back to the original 2019 predictions to hold themselves accountable on where things are tracking on the prediction side, which is always it's always nice to see. I actually really like the talent flow section. So they actually did a pretty deep dive into, hey, a big part of innovation is talent. Where does the talent come from? Where does it go? which companies are relative talent attractors versus people who lose talent and how that's evolved over time. And I think talent is a big part of the ecosystem that we don't talk about as much. I think capital gets a lot of the attention. And so I thought that was pretty neat and I would love to jam more on that. And then there's stuff that just warms like the macro person's heart, right? Which is like, hey, value creation versus value capture. Where do we see it? In which economies? Why? What's our prediction on which economies we'll be able to see both the GDP growth, but also can investors actually participate in that upside? And so those were the bits that I liked. I think overall, a very optimistic report on the region and a little bit talking their own book, right? But that's to be expected. But yeah, I I think overall, reasonably, reasonably fair. Yeah, I really respect it. I think that they had stated a bunch of predictions and then they went back and said, okay, these are the things that we hit. These are things we underestimated and we overexceeded expectations. And these are things that we overestimated and we underperformed as a region. So I thought it was a really thoughtful report. And I think the thing about it is, I kind of joked about 332 pages, but I think what they've been doing as well is they've been building on each previous report, right? So I'm starting to get suspicion now that this report can only get longer, which is good. Like I say, it warms the macro side of your heart. It warms the detail orientation side of my heart as well. And I think I totally respect what you said about talent and capital. I think I really enjoyed the case study they had around the Zolora mafia, right? And they said, you know, Zolora was one of the first gen internet companies. And there was a whole bunch of folks that had that training experience. And then they went off to build Shopback, Gojek, Le Bonito, Shopee, as well as Antler. And I thought it was just a really interesting piece where they also went off to build B Group in Vietnam as well. I thought it was just an interesting case study. And Obviously, we heard of the PayPal mafia, right? And some of that talent vortex conversation in Silicon Valley. But I think it was just nice to actually put not just the name of that happening, but also show some of the faces and companies that have been built out. And I think one thing I do think about is like, hey, there may be more people 
who are building right now, who are part of PayPal slash Zolora Mafia that's still building right now. And I think they should do a pretty good job talking about maybe what are the future mafias or networks of talent that may be emerging. I think they named ByteDance as a big one, as well as C Group and Grab as future uh, vortexes or networks of talent as well. Yeah, I mean, I think, so the talent question is an interesting one, right? Which is like, first of all, how do you get great talent to say, hey, I want to take a risk? They talk about earlier, the talent was sourced from the big four or accounting firms or the big three consulting firms, right? So how do you convince someone like that who's working there, presumably has this great prestigious job to say, okay, I'm going to go join a startup. And then once they have been part of a unicorn or something high growth, how do you get them to take that next step to say, hey, I'm going to go start my own thing? And so I think that's a really interesting and necessary progression for this ecosystem. And it's an interesting question also, which is, what did people learn at each of their stops and what things are applicable versus what things are not? You know, there's this always joke is like, hey, not all Google engineers are great entrepreneurs, right? Just because you were an amazing engineer at Google doesn't mean you're going to be a great founder because you were at this like super well-resourced place. You worked for a company that prints money, literally. Does that really apply to being a founder? Zalora and all of these rocket clones are interesting use cases, right? So we talked a little bit last week about hey, Southeast Asia about business model innovation or real like deep technical innovation. And in the sort of business model innovation frame of the world, Rocket alums have great training because there's a real focus on uh, customer acquisition, the p If you talk to any Rocket alum, they'll talk to you about contribution margin one, contribution margin two, contribution margin three. And so I think that very quantitative approach works on a lot of direct-to-consumer facing businesses. A lot of Rocket alums were in e-commerce where that attention to detail is really important. This is, again, the question, like, does that training translate to a product-driven SaaS company? TBD, right? We'll find out. For people who have grown up in a period of capital abundance, will the habits that they learned in those periods like translate to a period of relative capital contraction? Does the strategies and the tactics that worked in that period of, hey, blitz a bunch of countries really fast, launch teams, just kept going. Like, are those tactics going to work in, in this day and age? When I meet founders, I always ask them, they're always like, oh, I was head of this, head of that at what various companies. And it's like, okay, that's great. What'd you learn? What was your takeaway? How do you apply those learnings to your current startup? What do you think is transferable versus not? Yeah, that was an interesting quant review of like top founders who have generated great returns or build great companies. And what was interesting was that you had to be, what was predictive of it was that you were an early employee of a company that went public or exit was a good predictor, but a late stage employee of that same company was not predictive because arguably you learn different things of different scaling and it doesn't transfer well to being a founder. But what was interesting was that if you were an early stage employee of a company that did not exit was also not predictive. So I thought it was an interesting dynamic about what I said was like, what exactly are you learning from experience? Again, Statistics and correlation is not destiny. Obviously, you can be an early stage employee of a company that failed, for example, but doesn't mean that you're not going to do that. But it's interesting that what exactly did you learn, right? And I think also what are the capital advantages that you got maybe from being part of an exit process? What were the network effects that from the people you got to know as part of that dynamic? Not all high-performing teams in the end provide high returns or have a high exit value, but... I would say arguably that all high exit value companies generally have high performing teams. That's a interesting piece. 
I think to add to that as well, I thought it was interesting that they divided it into three terms for like transfers of talent. They call it talent feeders, training grounds, and talent magnets. And there's a nice way of saying, do you have a net inflow of talent or do you have a net outflow of talent? And I think my favorite Peter did said the management consulting firms have been rated for talent as a training ground, like they have a high inflow of talent. And then there's a lot of outflow. And they said, especially the name BCG as one that has a lot of alumni out of the consulting firms. And it reminded me actually of when I was at Bain, when I was there, it was just like the start of everybody leaving with tech. Everybody was going to work at Zalora, work at Grab, work at C Group. So just a huge intentional recruiting process, I guess, by, by the tech majors. But also I think there was an interesting competitive requirement where Bain, BCG, McKinsey basically had to say like, how do we improve our working environment to stop losing our best talent to tech side? And so that was an interesting dynamic. I mean, it's not like Bain, BCG, and McKinsey expect most people to go past the first two years. It's designed to be a training program. You expect some losses out of it. Everyone else is just arbitraging that training that you guys had, right? Hey, you have someone who came through that program. They know how to build a model. They know how to write a deck. They can do some presentation. That's really valuable, right? You don't have to train someone on the job on how to send an email. And I think once you see someone doing it successfully, there's a lot of McKinsey people at Grab. There's a lot of BCG people at Gojek. And so once you see someone, you trust them. You're like, oh, well, if someone like me can go do this big, impressive, fun thing, then I probably can do it too. So you're more willing to make that leap. What's interesting, actually, is it reminds me that two outputs in terms of like talent, right? So talent's coming in, so, so forth. And then we talked about whether they're going to become great employees or whether they're going to be becoming great founders. And those are two different skill sets that are emerging. And on that note, I think what was interesting was that on founders, they were also talking about how there's a lot of white spaces in the categories that they're looking at. So they say Southeast Asia is entering a golden age. There's so many IPOs that could happen in all these various categories, right? They're divided by vertical automotive versus digital security versus real estate versus auto. So I think they just listed every category in the economy. And then they create a digital version of that. And they just said, okay, this is all the white space where there isn't like a digital first attacker, disruptor of the incumbent category. I thought it was a good signpost, I guess, for a lot of founders who want to be founders. I thought it was an interesting dynamic for a lot of folks, personally. Yeah. I mean, I think those are all great spots to start, right? But then you also have to figure out, well, why haven't people done that? What is it about that category that hasn't attracted as much attention? to date. There's some things that require a lot more infrastructure to be built before it's easier to launch those things. I think wealth was one of the categories they didn't have a big digital provider yet. And I think part of that is like the evolution of how as economies become wealthier, right? You can't have wealth management until you actually have wealth, where you have enough people in the population that have wealth that need to be managed to be a truly like digital provider of the mass affluent. No mass affluent can't have a mass affluent digital provider. I think there's some interesting things there as well, but definitely a good spot for people wanting to start something to take a look and start to survey the landscape. Yeah. And I think it's really a function of, like you said, great founders attracting great talent. And what we're talking about is also working in great categories where there's some sort of tailwind or it's the right, not too early, not too late. And I think that's what I find a lot of like founders struggle with, right? Is they're like, Great founder, attracting great people, but way too early or way too late. And I don't know, it's so hard to tell whether it's too early or too late. I think that's the weird part. Well, I think part of it is also you have to find your niche. I think that's one interesting feature of Southeast Asia is that 
because you have 10 markets, some markets are ready sooner. And so you might start in the markets that are ready sooner and position yourself for entry into markets that are ripening, so to speak, later, given the experiences. Wealth management is an interesting one to me, where you look at a wealth front or a personal capital in the US and that group of people that they're serving is people who have like sub 5 million of assets. They're not big enough to be served by the private banks, right? Who kind of want 25 to 50 million of assets. But if you look at that comparable section in Southeast Asia, there's not that many people there. You know, maybe you start in Singapore, but then you sort of constrained by Singapore's population as well. Like, hey, that's not that big a market. Then are you going to go pick off like Jakarta and Bangkok and things like that? So yeah, it's an interesting problem. But I think it's also just what we tell SaaS founders a lot is getting to a million dollars of ARR is going to be a slog. And that's the line of, hey, do you have a real business or not? And so you need to capitalize yourself appropriately. You cannot go out and blow a ton of money and say, hey, I have a 300K of ARR. No one's going to fund you. You just can't make it. And so if you have the mindset like, hey, I'm going to be super frugal and get to a million of ARR, then it's going to open up a lot of things for you. So I think this sort of timing issue is like you can't call timing precisely. Obviously, no one knows the future, but you can understand the capital requirements of your business and try to set yourself up to say, what are some of the normal like chasm or breakpoints that people are looking for? And how do you get there? How do you optimize yourself for survival, basically? Yeah, and I think that's the interesting viewpoint, right? It's like you said, the deck really shows the macro side and from a VC perspective, really interesting. But how does that boil down to the SaaS founder, right? One thing I think I noticed that came out and it was interesting was they were talking about the capture of shareholder returns versus like the GDP growth of the country. And I think one thing they said was that they said that America... Obviously, GDP of capital is growing. At the end of the day, the shareholder returns or the stock market has really outperformed that of its fundamentals, right? And they said part of it was due to the international growth, total adjustable market, right? That American companies have the mindset, the training, the talent, and I'll say the geopolitical security slash norms, right? <laughs> to be able to go attack global markets. And so that was interesting to see that there. And I think that reminded me. Well, also the language. Yeah. More people speak English outside of the U.S. than in the U.S., right? And so you want to go global, you actually have a internal language that you speak. Like You can hire people who are local to the markets, but they can still speak with headquarters. And I would contrast that, I think, with Chinese companies who are trying to go global, where even if they do speak English, that's not how they communicate within the company. And so even when they hire country managers or other people, they still say, hey, fluency is preferred. And I think that really limits your pool of global talent and your ability to go, unless you're really going to just like parachute in your own people into every market. But yeah, I think, so two things, right? One is the ability of American companies to go global. But I think the other is like the depth of their capital markets, right? That American stock markets also attract listings from international companies and also have great deep capital markets with all of the ancillary, the sell-side analysts, the funds, like all the things that you need to actually turn that that business success into actual shareholder value that can be captured. It's a struggle to get our own companies listed here, right? They all go to the NASDAQ or the NYSE because yeah. that's where the investors are. Yeah. I, I think the language one is a real big issue, right? 
I was thinking about it over the holidays and I came up with this phrase. I call it language locked. So you know how some countries are landlocked in the sense that they don't have access to the ocean. And so as a result, they can't do trade. They can't do a whole bunch of stuff. Just having a port is so key. And for example, Ethiopia is just fighting all the time just to get access to a port because it is just fundamental for so much trade and access to the world. And I think there's a huge amount of what I call language lock. Or some countries in Southeast Asia are actually not language locked. And what I mean by that is obviously Singapore and the Philippines, for example, are native English speakers, right? And so one interesting thing I've noticed is that Filipino founders are rapidly, I think, improving, I think, the way they speak in terms of like startup language, the ability to fundraise, storytell, even access a lot of models because they're just 100% fluent in English. And so they're, I don't know, <laughs> downloading American YouTube videos about SaaS metrics and all these things. And so they're really able to unlock a whole bunch of it. But I think for folks who are just don't have access to that, Southeast Asia doesn't really have Chinese speakers, not that much. And also there's not much Chinese. There are some Chinese resources, but yeah, I think if you're like language lock, I think there's just a ton of resources in English. And so talking about talent, you can't even climb the talent ladder if you can't access all those free resources on the internet. It's crazy to see people educate themselves on crypto, on Udemy and stuff like that. It's bonkers. And there's so many hungry people. I say, God bless Britney Spears and Madonna and Ed Sheeran for teaching English and Taylor Swift because... I think that they really have driven that fundamental English fundamentals, right? And that lets you access the global internet economy. Do you think our kids are going to learn Korean? Tough. Given I mean, the explosion of K-pop popularity. <laughs> I think one thing interesting is that what I found out was that some languages are just harder to learn than others, full stop. Like, it's just scientifically proven. It's not even like a joke, right? It's like ideograms, like Chinese, is just fundamentally harder than English to learn. That plus, obviously, English has the power of global OS of entertainment pushing it. Like you said, I think you mentioned K-pop. K-pop is a more interesting language to learn because of K-pop itself. So having that entertainment dynamo is key to the language. So it's, I don't know, I just find it hard. Cultural hegemony, man. I was in Taiwan and I met two teenage girls from London learning korean because they love bts and i was like what they were motivated they're teaching themselves and their parents were like yeah it's really confusing but they're so into it and we spent like 200 pounds on a concert ticket for them to go see that i was like 200 pounds i don't have teenagers but i'm not paying for my kids to go for some 200 pound concert it's crazy to me the fact that they were learning korean i was like very fascinated by so yeah it is true yeah. and um... culture matters yeah, I was in Turkey as a tourist and there was a whole bunch of schoolboys and girls just like tailing me through the museum because they had a class trip and then kind of picked up the courage to ask me for a selfie <laughs> because they thought I was Korean and I was like, I'm so Oh, it's your moment, <laughs> so I was like, well, No, I, I took a photo still. So there's, there's, a bunch, there's a bunch of like photos somewhere in there, some phone cameras of me just doing a thumbs up or you know what, I just... Look, I wasn't going to crush their dreams, right? I, I didn't say I was a celebrity. I just took the photos. But yeah, I think that's a huge hidden lever, which is that entertainment complex can drive language adoption. And language adoption lets you, like you said, access talent markets, lets you sell to customers, and lets you even unlock capital markets. What we talked about, I think there's an interesting piece. They talk here about disposable income, right? And they talk about capital markets. And what they're saying is like Southeast Asia is rising for disposable income. That's one level of it. And then US is all about the US capital markets. What does it take to IPO there? And I think... At the end of the day, there's a 
alchemy that happens somewhere between household savings slash capital to country level capital to the ability of that to deploy that on a global or local basis. What do you yeah, think about uh, awesome. capital formation? Capital formation. <laughs> it's like time to go. Awesome. Exactly. We're capitalists. We like it. Sorry, I cut you off. You had a much more serious question. Uh, no, that's so funny. Definitely capital formation is going to be an interesting thing. And I think what was interesting was they started comparing all the different countries in Southeast Asia, right? So they were saying like, okay, some countries are like high growth, high equities. Some of it's like too good to be true. Some of it's fair and balanced. Some of it's partial reward to shareholders. And they said also, there's also going in circles, which means that you're not really going anywhere in both GDP or shareholder value. And I thought what was interesting, they said it was like, they said, China and Vietnam have both had been model fours, which basically saying that there's a lot of GDP growth, but that growth is not going to the stock market, right? Uh, which goes to, the, you know, why I said they are not capitalists. I, I think it's policy decisions that don't let capitalists or stock market returns have that lift from the GDP. What are your thoughts? I mean, I think there are a couple of Vietnamese companies that are on the cusp of IPO that are big enough and robust enough. And I think if we had maybe another 12 months of a bull market, would have made it out on the NASDAQ or, or so on. So I think you would start to see the beginning of that. I mean, I think one of the challenges of Vietnam is sometimes the opaque regulatory environment, and that makes investors a bit leery. And then the other one is like uh, related party transactions. You know, you're like, oh, your supplier is owned by your COO's sister-in-law. And it just becomes like a much more murky situation where it's like, oh, the value capture isn't going to shareholders. It's going to employees, but in this sort of backwards way that I don't really know how to diligence. And so I think a little bit is you want to see the maturation of those laws. I mean, I think the good thing is that I think in general, most regional governments believe that their political fortunes are tied to economic development. So they want to keep conditions relatively favorable to business. And I think part of that is learning how to develop policy, to put in place regulations that promote those conditions. And once everyone understands we're going to repeat game, and we shouldn't just plunder from <laughs> external investors or whatever it is, then I think things can improve, right? Rule of law, respect for regulations, all that kind of thing. I think on the on balance, I'm still relatively optimistic. I think it's just that we're earlier in the cycle. And I think once we get a few of these IPOs out the door, that experience and that capital also all flows back through the ecosystem. Yeah, let's double click on Vietnam, right? Recently, the VNG group, went public on the domestic stock exchange. And they said that they weren't allowed to go on a US stock exchange. Obviously, I think what's the claim versus what actuality of the performance is another thing altogether. But I thought it was a very interesting dynamic, which is that language around saying they, they're not allowed to go on the US stock market, which is because they're Vietnam listed, because they're Vietnam operations, makes it actually quite, if you look at their face value, honestly, it's quite distressing, right? Because basically what that means is that they don't have a good exit path to the US capital markets, which have the deepest but the most liquid way to do IPO or specs or whatever it is, right? For me, they I They were going like, to go out. They filed yeah, for the NASDAQ then, last year. It did, and then they switched to- and They the pulled it, but I mean, I think there's like a market yeah. condition thing, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm just saying, I think it's market conditions, but they also said that yeah. it's because of the government side. I'm just saying that if you truly believe it's a government, I don't understand the facts of it, but if it's true that government prevented them from listing on the US stock exchange, 
then that's actually very bad news because that means that it's crippled late stage growth stage crossover investing in Vietnam and middle stage multiples yeah, and yeah. early stage multiples because it's basically saying that unless you're like a I don't know, B2B SaaS, you're doing global market, but you have no Vietnamese operations. And so I think that's driving a lot of these Vietnamese startups also to domicile, right? In Singapore and do all these transactions to create that ability to have liquidity down in the future. So, well, Singapore lawyers, a winner for <laughs> 2023. I think they definitely have a lot of business incorporating all kinds of startups or domiciles or family offices. I think one thing they also mentioned actually in the Asia Partners report, which was interesting, was they said, look out for the Vietnamese sea turtles, right? So sea turtles are folks who are studying in the US, have gotten trained and they come back. And they said, yeah, Vietnam is full of engineers and folks that have studied in the US that are ready to build for the region. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's awesome, right? And not just the US, right? I think any diaspora, whether they've gone to Europe, I've met Vietnamese founders who actually grew up in Poland or other Soviet-associated countries because of the communist connection and have experienced other ecosystems, built up their skills in different economies and are coming home to exploit that. So I think it's great. So one is that they bring experience from different markets. They also often bring capital from different markets. I've had French Vietnamese founders who run tech teams in Vietnam, but have French investors. They can kind of leverage all these different facets of their network to bring to bear on the problem. And they're generally a little bit more open. They're not as scared of giving investors bad news. I mean, something that I've found sometimes with Vietnamese founders is like they want you to only hear good news. And you get a series of investor updates and you're like, okay, but what's going wrong? Because it's a startup, so something's definitely going wrong. And if I'm not hearing about it, it's making me nervous. We have a founder. He went to the U.S. on a government scholarship in computer science, came back after working in the Valley for a few years, and... He brought a lot of the practices with him. He offers free meals at his company. And he offers people a stipend if they live closer to the office. Because traffic in Ho Chi Minh is terrible. And so he's like, I just want people working. I want them really dialed in. And you can feel it, right? Like that sort of camaraderie, that sort of buzz when you walk into the office. It feels very, very googly almost um, walking into his offices in Ho Chi Minh. So I think it's good, right? I mean, I think part of innovation is bringing ideas for different places, remixing it for the local context, and making something better than if you were only from one place or the other. Yeah, you reminded me of uh, the U.S. accelerator program that was expanding to Southeast Asia across the world. And basically, they was just bringing the Silicon Valley mindset, culture, training. And one of the conversations I had with the head of international expansion was, it's like, what's your role model? What's your corporate benchmark? And then she said, McDonald's. And I laughed and laughed and laughed because the night before I had been walking my best friend, I said, this accelerator is basically the McDonald's for Silicon Valley. Like they're just taking the core model of Silicon Valley, outlook, mindset, hustle, benefits, whatever it is, but also localizing it for each place. And I thought it was an interesting dynamic to see that westernization, globalization of these cultural attitudes. And I think you have to have that, to be honest, because to build to aim to build a billion dollar company is really a crazy thing. But then to aim to build a company that can get there with technology, that is access to the US capital markets that's often English linked is really quite an interesting set of beliefs, right? That are quite novel, I would say. But the mindset thing is so important. Okay. Like the mindset thing is so important. There was a tweet this morning. Someone was like, 
I hate San Francisco, but honestly, there's no place in the world where you can be surrounded by as many people pursuing big ideas that you can learn from. And he's like, anywhere else, you have to like pay to get access to that. You know, of course, this like set off this furious discussion on Twitter, but I think that's what it is, right? Which is one is like, you need to believe that you can have big ideas and that you can accomplish them. And then you need people with money to believe that you can do it. And then you have to convince other people that they want to do this too. And then you can go do it, right? And I think in sort of corporate or very hierarchical types of systems, like who are you, young pipsqueak, to believe these things? Be quiet, take minutes, don't have your own ideas yet. It's like almost antithetical to innovation and startups. And so I think that mindset shift actually is super important to have that belief, to be able to say like, hey, yeah, I'm not just going to like wait my turn and do the thing. I'm going to like try to do something different. And I think that's actually a big issue for Singapore, right? We need to have big dreams. We need to be okay having big dreams and not be so excessively practical. It was like, why would I do that? That's never going to work, blah, 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 blah. Like if we don't try, we'll, we will never, we'll never know. Yeah, I think, again, I want to have that t-shirt now, right? It's okay to have big dreams. So that'd be so wholesome, right? We need a merch. We merch, need a merch. merch. Uh, yeah, we, we, we have a t-shirt that said, what happens if everything goes right? Ooh. That's... Which I kind of love as a t-shirt. Yeah. Because you have to think that way, right? I mean, okay, I'll tell you like a totally like random side story. My first job out of college was uh, investment banking analyst at JP Morgan. And it was 05 to 07. This is the boom market, right? It's before the crash. And we took a company public called Clearwire. This is like donkeys years ago, right? This is when basically there was two competing 4G standards. LTE, which is what one, it's what we use today, and Clearwire standard, which is called WiMAX. And the founder of Clearwire was Craig McCaw, and he'd made people a bunch of money on McCaw Cellular. So lots of people were like willing to give him money. And they launched with like stores all over the US. They were selling like a little like hardware box that gave you this 4G competitor WiMAX thing. They made up their own non-GAAP accounting term called EBITDAM. Okay? So earnings before interest, tax, depreciation, amortization, and marketing costs. So they were EBITDAM positive. (laughs) Okay? Just imagine me as this like fresh analyst and I was like, that's very strange. It seems like this business is losing a lot of money, but they're reporting this funny thing called EBITDAM, EBITDAM positive. And we're taking them public. And so I'm talking to my mom and she's like, oh, what are you doing at work? Blah, blah, blah. And I'm explaining this thing. And she's like, wow, these Americans, they really know how to think big. No Singaporean would ever invent this EBIT dam and try to convince people of that. And she's like, maybe because they have big country. So then they can think bigger. We have small country. We don't dare to dream so big. But yeah, like Stuck Man is like a totally ridiculous story. But like, how audacious are you willing to be for how long? And can you do it long enough to actually like make something happen? But yeah, they did go public. We raised a ton of money from them, but they did not win the 4G wireless standard war. No. But you were just missing. Keep it damn, man. Yeah. <laughs> Best metric ever. Yeah, I think there's a big reminder as well, right? Which is we talk about founders and we also talk about how capital is important. And I think that's the grand bargain between venture capital and founders, which is that founders can have big dreams. And they're funded by VCs who are gatekeepers, of course, but are funding that big dream. But also the truth is, if it fails, which 
the vast majority will fail. Maybe some estimates 39 out of 40 will fail. Like it doesn't wreck your life, right? It doesn't wreck your home. You lost time, but you got paid a salary during that time. And more importantly, you don't get shame for it. I think beautiful part about, I guess, startup culture, right? Is yeah, you build a $3 million. Co- but I think you know, some people take this too far, right? Of course. I think some people not, take not this fraud. too far. Not fraud. Obviously, failing gracefully. Not fraud. No fraud. No fraud. I think failing great. Yeah. yeah, no fraud. We are anti-fraud on this podcast. But yeah. failing gracefully, failing while treating all of your investors and stakeholders, employees, customers in a straightforward manner, I think is really important. And there's lots of people who have failed in their first or second endeavors who have come back, raised successfully and built great businesses. You know, there's structural things that enable that to happen, right? Which is like, you know, in the U.S., people don't give personal guarantees. Bankruptcy laws are relatively favorable. There are no non-competes. Non-competes are not enforceable in California and many other states. All these sort of small things contribute to that ability to dare greatly, but also fail and keep rolling the dice on it. But yes. No fraud. <laughs> We're like, not going to talk about fraud today, are we, Jeremy? I feel like we've been talking about fraud every week for the past three <laughs> times we've done a recording. we got to well, stop it. we got to okay? stop that it. That is going to definitely Asia. limit the ecosystem. Yeah, on that note, what's one key takeaway that you took away from the Asia Partners Report? Uh, there continues to be a Series CD gap that Asia Partners will fill. I think it's pretty consistent with what we've been saying about Southeast Asia. I think they've really put together all the data in a really nice way all in one piece. And so it's a great primer for anyone who wants to get up to speed on Southeast Asia pretty quickly. But yeah, I mean, I think the macro conditions continue to be good for people who want to launch in this area. I think the one talent piece that we didn't talk about that they do highlight in the report is the inflow of Chinese and Indian entrepreneurs. I think that's a big deal. Just like we talked about the sea turtles going back to Vietnam, I think Chinese entrepreneurs who've built real businesses in China and who are wanting to launch new businesses or expand into Southeast Asia, I think are going to be a great engine because they have got mental models, they've got networks and teams that they've worked with before. And so I'm excited to see what they're able to drive for the region as well. Yeah, I think for me, I really appreciated, I think, the expansion of the report from a top-down macro piece, which of course, like you said, delights the macro nerd in my heart as well. And then I think they drove into more of that network approach, right? So talking about talent flows, like you just said, from different countries, but also turtles, we're talking about, and then breaking it out by firms, right? To say what proportion, what is the ability to attract talent? What is their, unfortunately, ability to feed talent to other companies in a many-to-many approach? Like really goes back to an attempt to unpack the networkish component, which at a smaller scale is symbolized by the PayPal slash Zalora mafia, but... At a larger scale, it just means it's like a crazy thing to talk about. And I thought it was a good reminder that at the end of the day, this is a lot of complexity. And I know I opened it up by making fun of 332 pages, but I enjoyed all 332 pages. I'm not saying I dug deep into the footnotes of them, but I thought it was just really interesting because I think they just were willing to go deep right into it. And I got to pick out and synthesize the parts that I liked. So I really appreciate the attempt to unpack the networking thing, which is much harder to explain, right? So awesome. awesome. Looking forward to next year's report. Happy happy Lunar New Year to all who celebrate. Yeah. Happy Asia Partners Report release. a lot of release. pineapple tarts. Yeah. yeah. Happy <laughs> Asia Partners Report release. Go see Fatai. All that good stuff. Yeah, there we go. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this podcast, 
please share this episode with friends and colleagues. Sign up at www.jeremyow.com to discuss this episode with other community members in our forum. Stay well and stay brave.